0: In uh, neurobiology, neuroeconomics, um, which is fascinating stuff and a cutting edge. Um, but for those of you who are in the office, uh, sorry, audience, thinking, um, "Hey, uh, how do I know what I want to do later in life or soon?" Um, <laughs> Joslyn, educate me about the, the 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 bookstore test or the bookshelf test, where you like she just discovered that she was when she went to the library or the books, she tended to. Gravitates toward particular sections of her shells or fish. She's like, why am I not doing that? And so now that's what she does. Um, She got a PhD at UCLA and we're here to see a portion of her forthcoming book. Um, I am advised to, the the room is might, we we taped this session, so please speak up when you have a question. Um, And without further ado, let's welcome Charles Elbarman.
1: Thank you, guys. I'm very happy to be here. So as Joe said, I'm going to be talking about a portion of material um, from my book, which focuses on the effects of national humiliation on state behavior. And it's really looking at what constitutes national humiliation, how it affects foreign policy, why it does so, and when specifically it does so. So today I'm going to take a section of that, uh, some empirical sections of that work, and uh, talk about them with you all. So I'm going to focus on. The particular effect of defeat on aggression. And in the field of IR, there's been a lot of attention and focus on the effect of backing down in the past, or yielding without fighting. So making some sort of threat, but not following through on that threat. And there's been a lot of attention on the effects of my backing down on how others will treat me. So on this notion that uh, somehow, backing down makes me more vulnerable, and I will therefore face more challengers in the future. So there's been a lot of focus on this. There's been some focus on the effect of backing down on how the state itself will behave in the future, uh, with some arguing that, in fact, states that have backed down will become more aggressive in the future. Um, But what has not been addressed in uh, significant detail is what the effect of fighting and losing is. And so this work seeks to to get at this. And I'm going to start with a case, a motivating case um, that stimulated my thinking on this. And this is the case of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. Now, going into this war, expectations within France and amongst uh, European states was that France had a significant advantage. And Napoleon goes in, Napoleon III goes into the conflict thinking that he will quote, teach Prussia a lesson. And the French prime minister goes in, as he says, with a light heart, because he expected it to be short. Uh, He expected France to be glorious and victorious, uh, and that this was all in all to France's favor. Obviously, what happened was a dramatic reversal of those expectations. Uh, Within two months, Uh, Napoleon III is captured on the battlefield but at the end of the conflict you see Prussian forces marching a victory parade through the streets of Paris to eventually crown a new German Emperor within the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. So a very very dramatic reversal of expectations, right? Failure to live up to expectations on the part of France. what, was the, um, what were the impacts of, of this defeat on French foreign policy in the decades to come? Well, in the immediate aftermath of this defeat, France faced significant upheaval, Right, that they had experienced a loss of 30% of the French army, either through casualties, injuries, or, or just departure from the army, army. And there was a decision to engage in massive restructuring and to adopt the Prussian military organizational structure. So there was a lot of military reorganization, but it didn't stop there. There was massive re-educational campaigns, re, you know, um, reordering of, of, kind of uh, educational, organizational, bureaucratic structure within France. Okay? But it did not stop there. Upon signing the Treaty of Frankfurt, the French prime minister predicted at the time that the signing of this, quote, humiliating peace would lead to revolts in the streets of Paris, which it, in fact, did it led to massive domestic upheaval the rise of the paris commune civil conflict that ended resulted in tens of thousands of deaths uh, amongst the french so it was followed by a very extended period of domestic upheaval uh, and you know political competition between the monarchists and the republicans vying for power and the opportunity to kind of restabilize french domestic politics okay so that was in the The kind of domestic side, uh, the longer international implications of defeat uh, were perceived to be pretty dire. So Disraeli in 1875 projected that he did not see any prospect of France returning as a military power. He predicted that it was more likely that they would be partitioned, as Poland had, rather than that they would again conquer Europe. And this perception was also held within France. You had chamber members saying that perceiving that there had been massive status implications for France, that they had been demoted from this kind of position they'd held as almost master of the world, as he said it, to the position of a second-class state. Okay, so there was definitely questions about would France return to its position of prominence? Uh, you know, how how that return would come about. There were also predictions that of, of kind of lasting psychological damage between France and Prussia. Tsar Alexander at the time predicted that there would be an inexpungible hatred between the French and the Prussians. And Franz Joseph echoed this, saying that really, with by taking Alsace and Lorraine, Prussia had lost the war as opposed to winning because it was going to create this very destabilizing uh, element within European politics. So, we had this various set of predictions. Which way was, what, what direction was French trajectory headed in? How did this defeat affect its status? Uh, and would there be this kind of lasting animosity amongst these two European states? And these, uh, this kind of focus on potential revenge and this uh, inexpungible hatred, as he calls it, permeated throughout. French society uh, by the middle of the 1870s. So Victor Hugo, as he's in his re- retirement speech, to much fanfare, essentially from tomorrow on, France will have but one thought: to gather her strength, to instruct her children in righteous anger. In a word, the nation will one more, once more, become the might spirit and the sword, and its revenge will be terrible. Okay. And so this kind of focus, this cultural focus on revenge, was permeated kind of French politics and culture at this time. I always loved this painting, which was, depicts essentially at this time that educational practice started to incorporate this narrative of humiliation at the hands of Prussia by showing them where Alsace and Lorraine, these two provinces that Prussia has taken, are on the map, right? So teaching school children this narrative essentially of, of revenge, right? So, so these elements are, are you know, very, very pervasive. And so one might expect that you know, the foreign policy objectives of France in the 1870s and 1880s would focus on an act of revenge vis-a-vis Prussia or Germany, the newly created German state. Okay? And yet, when you look to see how the prime minister and his ministers, foreign ministers were thinking about this issue at the time, you see that they perceived an immense amount of risk. With this particular option, right? Gambetta, uh, who was the um, prime minister at the time, said that only madmen could think about trying to regain the lost provinces. Right? There was an expectation that they needed to wait on revenge until they gathered their material strength again. Right? So the fear that somehow going back out there to to try and tackle a Ever, even stronger German state would be a lost cause. It would only solidify France's decline in the eyes of others. All right, so there was definitely a focus on how to you know, achieve some sort of satisfying retribution against Germany. There was also this continued focus on how to restore French status. And so you had Gambetta saying, uh, in the late 1870s that it was time to raise the raise France to her feet again and restore her to her rightful place in the world so using this status these status terms of rightful place in the world a position of French prominence and um, you know other chamber members you know saying we were dreaming of some event or effort through which we should later seek to recover our position as a first- class power so while, Revenge may have offered a, a very um, clear path towards restoring French status. It also offered a lot, presented an enormous amount of risk, right? So the French had to decide how to balance these two objectives. And so, in lieu of revenge, acknowledging its risks, 10 years later, uh, after their defeat in the Franco Prussian War, with French politics essentially re stabilized. The Republican Party come to power. They decide to enter in to conquer or annex Tunisia. This was an easy process. It took less than two weeks to take the two primary cities within Tunisia. Tunisia at that time was a largely bankrupt state without a strong military force. And so they enter into Tunisia. Well, how do we know that this is actually reflective, you know, how, that this is related to the defeat of 10 years prior? Well, they're very clear in what they say about this, right? That Gambetta essentially says in, F- in Africa, France will take the first steps of a convalescent, right? That somehow it's starting to restore itself on the world stage. Uh, and others saying the reserve- reverses of some 10 or 12 years ago have rendered it necessary for France to make her influence felt amongst distant populations, right? They see this clear path towards status restoration in Africa. Uh, following this defeat. And finally, once they have actually uh, managed to successfully take Tunisia, Gambetta writes in his memoirs to Jules Ferry, a very um, advocate for colonialism, that there will be people everywhere who will not like it, but they will have to put up with it because France is becoming a great power again. So we see this act of aggression in northern Africa, unrelated to this initial defeat at the expense of a weaker third-party state. So, this case led me to pose the following question. Is this somehow representative of a broader pattern? We should look at, you know, can we look at defeated states to see who they target, uh, how they behave, and who they target? Right? So, if we're going to base our hypotheses on this case, some theoretical framework on this case, uh, then it generates the following hypotheses. The first being that recently defeated states would be more likely to initiate conflict uh, than would non defeated states. And if we're going with this you know, kind of example, that defeated states are more likely to target weaker third party states, OK? Um, so those are two primary hypotheses I, I explore. But there's also this question, this other element that somehow, you know, I, I wondered if all instances of defeat are the same. Would they have the same effects on the status of the state, for instance? And we clearly have reason to think that they aren't. Right, if you look through, I looked through all historical abstracts of academic work over, I don't know, some 50 years to see if there was some sort of consensus and how um, you know, statesmen and historian described particular defeats. And it turns out there's quite a bit of consensus. Things like the Russo-Japanese War, Russia's defeat within that war was deemed highly humiliating, both by Russians at the time and historians since then. Um, the six-day war is portrayed similarly, America's defeat in Vietnam. So there seems to be significant consensus that led me to think what is it that somehow you know, is, 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 what is shared by all of these defeats? And what really seems to be is that there's a, a failure in each of these cases to meet international expectation. Going into the war, we expect one state, you know, if, if we expect that there's a clear uh, predicted winner and that state loses, well, this could have very different differential effects on kind of the status implications for, of that loss. Okay? So this thinking that somehow exploring differential effects of defeat generated the third hypothesis is that states defeated by a weaker state are more likely to initiate and escalate conflict than states that have lost to stronger or equally sized states, all right? OK, so that's a, a general you know, s- theoretical framework for the piece. Uh, In thinking about the relationship between past defeat and aggression, uh, I wanted to consider, obviously I needed to consider alternative hypotheses that might explain this relationship. And so I kind of drew three primary explanations, or two other primary explanations, in addition to my status explanation, from the literature. And I argue that we can get at the, the differential relevance of these, or salience of these, because they have different behavioral implications. Okay, so the three... In addition to my kind of argument and wanting to test this notion of status concerns, I explore the fact that maybe states maybe an increase in post-defeat aggression is actually just driven by the desire for revenge or to settle some unsettled score from the, the prior conflict. And then finally, I look at this notion of reputational concerns. Maybe it's actually something about how they think of their international reputation. So let me go into those in more detail and flesh out the mechanisms a little bit. So uh, just as I've described in terms of status concerns. So defeat can generate these fears of demotion. And you'll frequently see states talk about this, that they fear falling to the level of Spain. Spain is always used in these cases in the 19th century or the Italians. So like, that's always the concern. You're going to fall to the level of one of these states that somehow does not have a prominent position in the world and is viewed to be a second class status, uh, of second class status, without real influence. Right? So this leads states in these positions to seek some ways to shore up their status. Shore, especially if they're great powers, they somehow want to reaffirm their great power status. Okay? And so we have to think about if this is true and they believe that conflict is, is a plausible avenue to, to doing that, who would they target in that case? And I argue um, that you know, if you're seeking to restore your status, for instance, if you're a great power, you think about the acts that define that status. And one act that has defined great power status for hundreds of years has been the ability to project power abroad and influence outcomes in spheres beyond your borders. Uh, So in that case, it's, it's not necessary that you would have to target equally sized states, because France going into Tunisia obviously not doing that, but it's still perceived that there was some sort of esteem and, sta- and, and status to be gained there, right? that they would signal both a willingness and intention to remain a great power. So my argument here is that we don't have to target in order to augment the status of states. If we think about Russia going into Syria most recently, they were clearly not going in. Uh, you know, against an equally sized rival, and yet there was a perception that they were doing this in part because they wanted to be perceived as a great power, okay? So drawing on that thinking, it's this notion that, you know, they could target states of all sizes in order to reclaim their status, Uh, and there's this added perception that if they're going to try and restore status, they want successful path to do that. Right? You can imagine scenarios in which you go out and try and reclaim your status, and you only solidify the impression of your decline in the eyes of others if you fail again. Okay? So I argue that kind of these defeated states in this way, who are trying to, to reassert their, their status in the world, are relatively risk averse. And therefore, they may turn to third party states rather than taking on attempting revenge and losing. Okay? Uh, another status implication would be that great powers would be those that we would see engaging in these acts because they are the powers that both are able to do so and that would seek to engage in acts that define great power status. okay So we would expect somehow great powers to potentially behave in different different ways than non-great powers. All right, so that's the status mechanism. The desire for revenge, it could be twofold. one is kind of a straightforward psychological explanation is that we defeat generates anger, and from anger we di- desire some sort of catharsis, or we believe that it makes us feel better to humiliate our rivals. And this has actually been where most of the literature in IR that has looked at the effects of humiliation has focused its attention, is on kind of, you know, the relationship between humiliation and cycles of revenge that persist over time as states humiliate the other, and these kind of inescapable cycles. Uh, Obviously, attacking the state that defeated you could have a very material basis. Uh, if you had failed material or strategic or political objectives in the last round, you lose. You are likely to have those, those. Those objectives may persist. And so you may, therefore, try again. Okay. So if this mechanism is correct, then our expected target would obviously be the state responsible for one's defeat. Okay? All right, so the third mechanism is kind of this is one that involves reputation. And status and reputation obviously share a lot, but in this case, we're talking mostly about a reputation for strength, military strength and resolve. Much more akin to kind of the straightforward backing down kind of reputational literature, right? In this argument, it would be that the perception of weakness will draw challengers. And so you have to think about how you would demonstrate your strength. Vis-à-vis those potential challengers, okay? And drawing on the literature uh, in this area, the reputational area, there's this notion that you know, in this case, you would want to target states of equal size. If you want to show that you how you know France would actually fare in war against Germany, uh, I argue that it's not very informative for Germany to s- about France's military capabilities to see see it go and take a bankrupt country in northern Africa, right? That somehow there's much less effective, you know, weaker states, targeting weaker states is a much less effective signal if this is what you're trying to convey is resolve and strength, Okay, Um, So this leaves us with these three different behavioral predictions that I use to kind of get at the relative uh, salience of these. So again, just to summarize, if it's status concerns, we would not predict any real relationship with the size of the state, necessarily. If it's desire for revenge, we would expect them to target the state responsible for their, their defeat. And if it's reputation, we would expect them to target states of equal or greater strength. Okay? All right, so that's the, those, those are the general pieces that I seek to test. And now I'll tell you a little bit about how I did that. Um, so I used uh, military interstate dispute data from 1816 to 2000, and I was looking at both dispute initiation and level of hostility. We're not only interested in how likely they are to initiate a dispute, but we care about how aggressive or hostile they are within those disputes. It doesn't matter. They could issue lots of verbal threats, but we're interested more in use of force. And so I look at both of those. Excuse me. And then there's this issue of how, what the relevant time frame is. Um, I look at defeat, the effect of recent defeat in the last 10 or 20-year periods. I do a lot more work on this in the appendix, but today I'll focus on those um, to see. Because obviously, in the case of France, response to defeat was not a possibility within the immediate years following defeat. It required a lot of domestic re- and military rebuilding and, and restructuring. Okay? So I look at the effects of defeat. I look at the effect of asymmetry in the who you lost to to see if somehow these states are going to respond differentially. If you lost to a state that was much weaker than you, are you more likely after that to go target uh, to initiate conflict versus if you lost to a state that was stronger than you? So, do these states behave differently? Okay? And so, the way I get at that is you know, in, in kind of a relatively crude measure, but this to say, what is your share of the total capabilities within your dyad? And these are measured using the typical sync scores from the um, correlates of4 data set. All right, so I also wanted to look at victory in the last 10 years. We also haven't really assessed how victory affects states. And one, util- one useful um, purpose of this is that to say, in kind of statistical models of this sort, you have to account for the fact that you could be picking up just general activity in the international system. Some, st- some periods of time are going to just be more active than others. They're going to have loss and gains and you know, things like this. Or there's a the possibility that certain very active states in the international system are driving your results. So if this is true, if it's kind of general activity, then we would expect victory to also be correlated with later initiation. Right? Um, but if we find that it isn't true, it really suggests that it's something about defeat and less so about general activity. So I look at victory. I include a variable to account for a same opponent so I can get at whether or not this is revenge. I include other controls and measures to account for in the state's own recent activity levels to make sure it isn't kind of driven by this heightened periods. And then I include standard measures, kind of relative capabilities, joint democracy, share of systemic excuse me, systemic capabilities. Uh, and I look at um, I engage in two types of models. One is a very straightforward within country design which is to say I looked at the probability of initiating conflict in the 10 or 20 years before defeat and compared it with the 10 or 20 years after defeat. And this, again, helps you rule out these possibilities that this is really just general activity or particularly active states that are driving results. Um, And so I I won't present those. I can. I have a a table of those. But I'll focus on the crash national. The within-country results very much support the results that I'm about to present to you. All right. So the cross-national, result, resu- cross-national results for those of you who favor um, these ugly tables is to say that you know we we here we have uh, do I have a pointer In the center. On this, oh that thing um, so you know it's really just to see so you can get a sense of what the variables are. So I'm I'm going to present kind of substantive interpretation of these results uh, now, but just so you you can see what variables are included within the models. And we could go back uh, to this if those people are interested. But So let me get to substantive interpretation of these results. So hopefully this is easy enough to see. So what this is is separated defeat in the last 10 years and 20 years. Don't know why I put that at the bottom, but anyway. Separated by all states, great powers, and non-great powers. Okay. So this is looking at the probability that a state will initiate conflict In the 10 and 20 years after defeat. Okay? And what we see here is the following Great powers are 37% more likely to initiate conflict in the 10 years after a defeat than are non defeated great powers. Okay? We see that for all states, we see a, a significant result, but this result is actually masking a pretty significant difference on the effect of non great powers. Non great powers are actually are less likely to initiate disputes in the 10 years after being defeated. If we look over 20 years, uh, in fact, the, you know, fifty uh, great powers are 50% more likely to initiate disputes in the 20 years after defeat than are non-defeated great powers. Okay? And over a 20-year period, I don't have it on here, but non-great powers um, are not statistically, you, know, you can't say with absolute confidence that there is an increase, but it is um, relatively close, but it is headed in a positive direction. We compare this with the effect of victory in the last 10 years. And what we see is that victory is correlated with a, significantly correlated with a negative, with a decline in conflict initiation. So somehow, you know, it is, you know, victory, actually great powers are 19% less likely to initiate a conflict in the 10 years after than our country, great powers that have not been victorious in conflict. Okay? All right, so that suggests that our original premise that somehow there's a relationship between defeat and aggression or initiation um, bears out. Um, But what about how hostile states are within those conflicts? Sorry, these numbers are small, but this is a graph of hostility level, right? So we have threat of force, display of force, use of force, and full-out war, okay? So we have increasing levels of hostility on the bottom and what we're comparing here is that once states are in a dispute, what is the highest hostility level that they engage in? Okay. What we see is that for great powers, comparing non-defeated great powers and defeated great powers, defeated great powers are about 50% more likely to end up in a war in their subsequent disputes than are non-defeated great powers. Okay? We see that the overall use of force and war is actually about 25% higher than it is for non-defeated great powers, and these are you know uh, significant at conventional levels. So these are distinct, you know, distinct um, that we can't just, we don't you know we can say more than that they simply initiate conflict; that they are actually engaging in higher, more use of force and higher levels of aggression, and that this is true for all states. It's just most prominent amongst great powers. All right. Um, the question then. Oh, in terms of of humiliating or these kind of asymmetric, what is the effect of asymmetry in um, capabilities in terms of who you lose to? So this graph depicts that relationship. And what you see on the bottom is share of total dyadic capabilities, which is to say, how much of our joint capabilities do I account for? And so 100% means I've got them all. 50% means we're even, right? And on the left-hand side, which I don't have labeled, but should, is the probability of conflict initiation. Okay, So we see that, obviously, there's a strong relationship. The more you have against more capabilities you had going into a conflict against someone who beat you, the more likely you are to go and initiate conflict after the fact, after defeat. Maybe you're thinking, all right, fair enough. Um, you know, states that are defeated by weaker states probably suffer fewer loss of capabilities, and therefore are more ready to go out and engage in conflict. So I looked at capability levels uh, of a, a number of varieties, but this presents at 100% of pre-loss capabilities. So this is to say only those states that actually are in the position of capabilities that they were prior to their defeat. Okay, So this is to say we're controlling for differences in capability loss that might have resulted from the defeat itself. And we still see this effect. Okay. All right, so that tells us that some, you know, not all defeats are alike, somehow these things are different. Uh, And asymmetry of kind of capabilities going into the conflict seems to matter. So the question then is who do they target? Okay, going back to our mechanisms, and this is a just simple summary statistics of great powers and non-great powers. Great powers experienced 16 defeats between 1816 and 2000. Non-great powers experienced 63. And so what these are are percentages of conflicts initiated by these defeated states in the 10 and 20-year periods after defeat, broken down by whether or not they target the state responsible for their defeat or a third party. And what you see are very different patterns. Obviously, you see the great powers actually on only 4% of it, a subsequent def, uh, initiations after defeat in the 10 years after actually are targeted the state responsible for their defeat, whereas 96% uh, are targeted against third party states. And this changes somewhat over a 20 year period, but the pattern largely holds that they are reluctant to engage in defeat Defeat. I'm sorry. Reluctant to engage in revenge, which is very much in contrast to this perception that we have that somehow, you know, increases in aggression will be channeled or targeted at the state responsible for one's defeat. We compare this with the pattern for non-great powers. We see something quite different. That actually, in this case, 45 percent, roughly, in over 10 and 20 year periods, are targeted at the state responsible for their defeat. So somehow, revenge. Uh, acts of revenge, whether they're psychologically or materially motivated, um, are far more common uh, than are um, acts of, you know, int- targeting third-party states, as we might expect. And this is born, bears out within the kind of uh, more standard uh, statistical models, right, in which I try and get at, which I get at the same thing. So this is defeat in the last ten years. Uh, and in the 20 years. And so what these numbers represent is the following. So this is the likelihood that a state will target the state responsible for its defeat compared with the baseline probability of initiation within the population. Okay, And this is to say that great powers actually in the 10 years after revenge, as the prior summary statistics just suggested to us, are far less likely. There's actually 54% less likely to target, to engage in revenge than is the baseline for conflict initiation within the population, whereas non-great powers are actually more likely to target them. Over a 20-year period, this pattern largely goes away. That actually, at that point, great powers do seem uh, less or, or um, uh, more willing to essentially engage in acts of revenge, um, and that this pattern is, it holds for all states. Um, If we look at targeting of third powers, we see that this is reversed. As that prior graph suggested, that in fact, great powers are actually 44% more likely to target third party states than the baseline conflict initiation rate within the population, whereas non-great powers don't do that. So again, we have these differential results for great powers and non-great powers. They engage in different targeting, but so we, it seems that we should draw different conclusions about the st- dependent upon the status of the state. Okay? All right, so, so those are the primary statistical results. I'm, I'm very happy to go into kind of more methodological detail if, uh, and if you have questions, but I just wanted to present the, the general substantive takeaways from the research. And so it leads to the following conclusions. Um, so the first <coughs> is that <coughs> defeated states. Are roughly 38% more likely to initiate conflict over a 20 year period. So we definitely find support for the, the first hypothesis, this relationship between past defeat and future aggression. And again, this is borne out within the within country analysis. So we don't have to think this is somehow you know, a factor or some sort of you know, um, function of kind of general activity. Uh, and this is even more pronounced within great powers. That defeated great powers are 50% more likely in 76 uh, to initiate conflict, and 76, 76 more likely, boy, 76% more likely to fight a war in a subsequent dispute than are non-defeated great powers. Okay. Um, we also know that we can contrast with the, this with the effects of victory, just to say that victory actually leads states to become less assertive and less aggressive in the international system uh, and it does so by roughly 14% so if a state has won we can expect it to actually uh, withdraw somewhat from from uh, kind of dispute behavior and we saw that losing to weaker states doubles the conf- rate of conflict initiation uh, even when controlling for the loss of capabilities so it does seem to be that there's some you know some difference uh, Uh, that is, you know, this differences in conflict initiation are a function of this. I argue that it's because loss to states that are weaker than you have larger status implications. And therefore, you have more incentive to go out and show the world that you intend to restore your status. Um, So let's think about mechanism now, what we found evidence for. And I argue that we found strong evidence in support of this notion that the case of the Franco-Prussian War what well, represents a more generalized pattern that this was not unique. That in fact, what we see is, you know, that there were strong effects amongst great powers, states attempting to restore their great power status, uh, and that status who they target in the near term really depends upon their existing status, so their status going into the defeat. So great powers were far more likely to target weaker third-party states in the near term, whereas lower-status states were willing to engage in acts of revenge. They had far less on the line. They had less to prove in terms of their status. Uh, and therefore, you know, they could engage in, in risky acts of revenge that might have offered some catharsis for any sort of um, anger or any sort of material objectives that they might have had. Uh, but that it seems like, over a pattern of a longer term, that great powers you know, may engage in acts of revenge after sufficient periods of recovery. OK? Um, and so those are the main takeaways I look forward to discussing with you guys. I think a broad takeaway from the paper is really that this presents kind of a novel explanation of how past outcomes affect uh, interstate aggression and how they affect future state behavior that has not really been examined within the field. Uh, and that understanding how defeat affects you know, state behavior um, you know, it needs to be more fully fleshed out. So I look forward to the discussion and to your questions. Thank you guys very much.
0: Uh, if you just raise your hand, I'll call on you in the order that I see you. But, um, all right, we'll start with Dr. Kalanick. Oh, okay, thanks.
2: Um, so I enjoyed your talk and I, I like the theory and I think it's plausible. Um, I'm less convinced about the alternative Hypotheses testing, in the okay. sense that I'd like to see it tested against a broader variety of alternative hypotheses. So I understand why, you know, reputation might be one, given that that's one of the few places in the field that have thought about this. But you know, I think about like security, yeah. insecurity, right? So a country that is way more powerful than some other country loses to that country. The less than it takes home is, "Wow, I'm way less secure than I thought I was." Yeah. You know, one way of trying to become more secure is expanding. Okay. So maybe that's something that's going on. Or, you know, slightly differently, but maybe somewhat related, that it might have something to do with the objectives of the first war, right? So when I think about the the nineteen sixty seven war, and you know, the next war is like the nineteen seventy three war. Well, some of the objectives have just not been resolved. So the, the country wanted something, didn't get it. It tries again. Maybe it tries in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, so I'd be curious about what you think about that. And then I was also hoping you could say something about um, the Russia case and the Six-Day War case, since you mentioned them. Like what, what conflict did Russia initiate after 1905? And I'm assuming the Six-Day War is 73, but <coughs> I'm, I'm curious
1: OK, so let me just, so, so the plausible um, alternative hypothesis you had in mind was kind of this notion that if you've lost security, then you're going to somehow go out and expand territorially in hopes of material benefits of doing so? Mm-hmm. OK, fair enough. Um, and then the, the second point, this notion of you know, what about failed objectives, I mean, I think that if I found evidence that somehow revenge amongst great powers was a prominent outcome, uh, that it would make sense to go back and try and parse, what, you know, was this about failed objectives or psychological objectives or whatever it may be, but it's, a, you know, the fact, and it might be, you know, maybe that's worth doing for the non-great powers, but in the case of the great powers, it's only 4%. You know, I mean, there seems to be a real reluctance to, to actually, well, I don't know about reluctance, but they, they don't actually go and seek revenge uh, in the years um, following, so that just doesn't account for this increase in, in aggression in the years, in the 10 years after defeat. Um, so, you know, parsing the validity of those two has not been uh, something I focused on for that reason. And, I, you know, in offering kind of the, the two cases, I wasn't suggesting that they were clear cases of my particular theory. It was really just that, you know, when you examine whether or not there's a consensus, I was trying to assess, you know, what, what differentiates types of defeat. And so I went back to look through kind of how these defeats are conceived of, and I found these patterns in which these two events are described in this way because Russia was clearly expected to win, and it was very surprising to all involved that they didn't. And it you know arguably forced others to say, well, should we really be reassessing Russia's place in the world, right? That this young upstart Japan defeats them. Does this mean that Russia is no longer should no longer be considered prominent position, right? And the Arab states as well, they were expected to win. They didn't. So how do we reassess their place in the world? So I wasn't necessarily arguing that they were clear cases of my, of my theory.
0: OK, uh, next up, Ben Tennyson.
3: Oh, thank you so much for the interesting um, presentation. And um, I echo um, Rosa's points about the fantastic theory, interesting um, empirics. I guess I had a few questions kind of in a broader sense going beyond um, necessarily your argument to think about this in an expanded way. So when thinking about this paper for kind of modern um, questions, um, thinking about what do we really mean by victory and defeat in the post-1945 world um, is important. Because as we see with Vietnam, um, the forever wars we're involved with today, um, what we actually mean by victory and defeat becomes very hazy. Going to the um, Egypt example, there's actually the Egyptian um, intervention in Yemen in the 60s -hmm. that leads to the 67 war because they felt like their status was reduced. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was not a clear victory defeat. It just wasn't victory. So I'm curious if you would say your argument could, post-1945, extend to not just victory and defeat, but just we didn't achieve victory Mm -hmm. fast enough or in the way we wanted, um, Mm -hmm. and if that would actually uh, carry on the same effects. Um, In addition, kind of going further back then, on a different point. Looking at the Franco-Prussian example made me think that leading uh, up until really uh, World War I or even the end of World War II, the way you got international great power status was through colonization. Mm -hmm. That was um, the the, the international law of sovereignty was directly written um, to justify we are great powers because we can colonize you. Um, So post, once colonization is taken away as an option, Um, Does that lead to different status-seeking behaviors that these states do? So would you see kind of the Cold War military interventions and proxy wars, is that how, would you argue that's how the column that the the status-seeking now plays out? Um, Is nuclear proliferation the new way that status-seeking will play out? Or could you maybe spin out um, some thoughts kind of on how once colonization is taken away? And finally, on the empirics, I was just curious on the same point. Um, do you include the quotes um, of war, extra systemic wars at all? Because I'd be interested in what's going on with, in the decolonization wars. You know, France loses for, uh, in Vietnam, and then we see uh, escalation in their other colonies. And if not, that might be a way to kind of look at different forms of status as well. That'd be an interesting extension.
1: Great question. Thank you. So victory and defeat now, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that I'm interested in defeat in terms of my larger. Project and kind of humiliation is really, you know, humiliation involves any, um, in part, I argue, this kind of failed, failure to live up to your expectations, right? So we all kind of have these expectations of how great powers are supposed to behave, and when they go into Syria, how quickly they should prevail, and if they don't, when it starts to seem like somehow they're not living up to how we thought that they would, given our expectations. So yeah, I mean, there may not be clear-cut declarations of war anymore and signing of treaties at the ends of war, uh, but we can still imagine other ways in which you know, they feel that their status has been compromised by their performance on the world stage. So other things I look at, I mean, you could look at the longevity of the dispute. You know, is it somehow that it was expected that they would go in, it would be quick, it would be easy, but it persists? Um, that's something that I've looked at and definitely found like you know, if it was a longer a dispute against a weaker state that that makes you even more likely to go and engage in these types of behavior. Um, you could look, you know, but, but measures how you actually account for defeat, uh, you know, it, amongst great powers. I mean, you could argue that defeat amongst non-great powers, somehow there were 63 cases over this that spanned uh, the full time period. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing to think about, but I think still focusing on kind of failures to, to meet international expectations and defining those can be difficult. Uh, in kind of rigorous ways. Um, uh, In terms of kind of status seeking after colonization, um, I completely agree that colonialism colonization was seen as a marker of this, and the scramble for Africa is very much driven by status concerns and kind of this endogenous competition between states to have the most, and that that drives a, a lot of what happened there, far more than did kind of material concerns. Um, and so the question is: Once kind of we decided that colonialism was a, a, a bad thing, um, what replaced that? And I do think yes, people have made the case that nuclear weapons, uh, after you know the end of uh, after the Second World War, took played this role. But you could argue now that that has been replaced. In fact, nuclear proliferation is no longer seen to be admirable, and so that somehow states are seeking other ways uh, to augment their status in a world that you know where states develop nuclear weapons, they're rogue states. Right, so there may be still some in the international system that perceive that to be a path to status, but uh, you know, amongst many it is not. Uh, so in the more recent kind of post-Cold War era, you know, I think that you, know, you could be getting back to multi- heading multilateral interventions in other countries. Regime change, France deciding they wanted to helm the charge into Libya. Uh, Russia deciding they wanted to intervene in Syria, right? That they may not be going to conquer territory anymore, but still projecting a power abroad, we still see states doing this frequently. Um, And, you know, whether or not they perceive that to be a path to kind of great power status uh, seems plausible. Also participation, kind of standard participation in international organizations, getting a seat at the table, you can imagine less conflictual paths to status. Um, And then the, Extra systemic wars? No, I mean I actually I haven't. Like, kind of, you're saying to to look at, you know, can you tell me just tell me a little bit more what you mean?
3: So in the quotes of war data, they have the um, kind of decolonization wars as a separate okay. category. And, right, right, and right exactly. If that's what the status is driven by, it'd be you should, that's the, kind of the best case scenario for your argument is that you should see them right. escalating. In the, uh, war after the first, you know, yeah. um, after the,
1: the French lose in Vietnam, you should see them escalate in. Uh,
0: Algeria. Right. That's where you right. get the most. Right, right, right. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Next up,
4: um, press of ah, okay. Um So, uh, uh, my questions are related, I think, to but maybe less detailed. Well, uh, detailed in a different way than Ben's. Um, so, um, I'm wondering if. Uh, uh, your data set is really multiple subsamples or multiple data sets. I was just trying to think through wars in my head. Like, um, uh, I'm not, I, I don't spend enough time combing through mids, um, but I, I can't think of many um, wars among great powers since the Second World War. So um looking for um you know uh, uh, great powers to uh lose a war uh to another great power and then act somehow based on that, presumably those cases are all driven by a very different time than we're in today um and uh you know I wonder um if what you're finding is Meaningful then for you know what, what kind of um, you know ha- why you believe that this has legs to a different period, or or if you think about um, I was also thinking about the colonial um kinds of wars, um, so these are wars where there's a big um uh military capabilities uh difference, so you have a much higher level of humiliation. Um For the losses in the um, recent period, but then uh, I was having difficulty um, you know thinking of cases of great powers being humiliated and launching more wars against anyone as a result in the recent period, right? So again, you can think of nineteenth century or early twentieth century examples, but um you know i guess if you count i mean I, I think it's really hard to count algeria as a french initiation but maybe it is in the data after they lose at Phu. i'm not sure it just doesn't sound like it makes sense to me or britain didn't launch attacks or you know the united states didn't launch you know may, maybe grenada did, did, is that shows up as we we got our status back after, after vietnam, vietnam because we did grenada and now it just doesn't, like, the, the the politics of Grenada are not about humiliation. They're not about anything you're talking about. Like, uh, if you can, if you extend it to that level of, oh, yeah, the data does show some cases. If those are the cases, it leads me actually to question more the argument, not to, to feel like I'm corroborating the you know the Russians in Afghanistan, what you know I, I just, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, just tell me more.
1: Uh, okay, so I mean I guess my question is what would lead me to think that 20th century behavior would be different than 19th? I don't I don't have any predictions of why that would necessarily be so unless obviously you argue for some. You know, that in fact we would expect it in the post war period to be more pacific, nuclear weapons, we have all these explanations for the long peace, right? So, so I don't, I mean, I, I um, you know, my theory is that the essentially states value status, they value it always, it is an innate kind of, you know, social psychological factor, and that that yeah. will be true no matter when. The shape and nature of humiliation may change over time, but its effects will be similar. They may engage in similar, different types of practice, but it will have similar motivations. Um, But, you know, kind of getting at, um, you know, individual cases, you're right. I mean, this kind of approach draws on, you know, um, know, kind of we're trying to explain some degree of variation. We're obviously not going to explain all of it. Um, but so in other cases, you know, we still have, the onus is still to explain the relationship between past defeat and future aggression, and the fact that, you know, even within, co- within country samples, which are in no way reliant upon kind of these idiosyncrasies of whatever you think the statistical approach is, is that, you know, it's very straightforward. The probabilities are higher afterwards. So we're still in the position of having to, to explain that. And, you know, whether or not that differs over time, I, I don't have an explanation for why it would, do you?
4: Well, I mean, I can think of lots of stories. I probably don't believe any of them, but, but, but there could be lots of stories. When, when I, would, you know, just because I agree with you, I don't think things are, you know, mutable. Yeah. We're not like better people than we were a hundred years ago. We've overcome all of this. I, you know, I don't tend yeah. to, that you could tell lots of stories. Sure. But what I would say is the fact that the empirical evidence hasn't matched your theory for the past hundred years. It did in the past, calls into question whether, you know.
1: Well, we have I, the primary yeah. case of defeat that we typically look to, which I didn't even cover in my book because I viewed it to be so uh, agreed upon is obviously German defeat in World War One, right? That we have this notion that without World War One, you wouldn't have World War Two. So I won't accept the 100-year premise. Um, but but so so clearly, you know, that the, there seems to be a strong relationship there. I mean, the fact that we haven't had any war means that we haven't had any wars, countries to be defeated. And that's... You know, that's not a failure to meet the expectations of the theory. It's just that there's been less data to go on. Um, but, you know, that hasn't been true amongst non great powers. I mean, you still see a lot of conflict among, well, not a lot, but you see conflict among non great powers. Uh, and, um, but, you know, their, their behavioral implications were very different, right? So, um, but I mean, yeah, of course, thinking about how these things change over time and if you're really capturing some variable that I, you know, that it's, it's definitely important to think about. I totally agree. Um, yeah. OK. President
0: Nash.
5: Uh, thanks very much. Uh, and thanks for a very interesting presentation. You know, I think the uh, argument against reputation and the argument against revenge um, <clears throat> is pretty compelling. <clears throat> there is something going on, certainly, with um, the likelihood of defeated powers to uh, attack uh, again against other weak powers. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm uh, not certain about is uh, whether this is attributable to humiliation uh, or status uh, or something else. And it seems to me that um, there are two ways to to get at that. One would be um, process tracing uh, within cases. Um, I'm not sure. You know, by the way, that the, uh, Germany after World War I uh, would, would, uh, <laughs> would work very well. Well,
1: so if it was about the treaty and not the defeat.
5: <laughs> well, no, yeah, I mean, two things. Uh, yeah, the, one is the, uh, the, the uh, injustice of the treaty. But secondly, you know, there's a, a substantial literature, uh, you know, sort of recounting how uh, the Germans were convinced that they didn't lose the war. Um, that the problem was that the uh, communists and the Jews and other malefactors on the domestic front stabbed uh, the troops in the back. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in any case, um, there, there, one way would be a clear, uh, you know, sort of specification of what the, you know, the, uh, the national thought pattern, whether of the leadership or the uh, uh, or the public, and you know what it would look like if uh, you were right, um, and what it would look like for other expectations, uh, for you know other uh, ex- explanations, and an obvious explanation which I don't think that you have uh, uh, fully dealt with is that. You know, you're attacking weak powers because you can. Um, you know, this is great power politics, uh, one hundred um, and one. Uh, and you know, so uh, uh, you know, you find other weak powers. Uh, you know, because there there was something motivating the initial war that you lost that led you to roll the iron dice. Um, and so, you know, you could see how an argument in cold blood could be made. Now, the the issue, then, is not uh, that you you can't really um, decide between these two. It seems to me, on the basis of the data that you have, what you need uh, is some more refined data, specification of what the rationale and what the decision making process should look like uh, for the humiliation theory um, and the alternative explanation I think the most likely alternative explanation is that you're on the hunt to get stronger and uh, didn't work this time so you're going to find another uh, weak uh,
1: weak state oh, I see so stronger means just material kind of back to this you want material capabilities yes. because you've lost right. um, okay so I have a few thoughts on on that I'll start with that one so, so I include a variable in here that accounts for capabilities, your capabilities now relative to the capabilities you had before you lost. And what we see is that states don't go out, you know, until there's a strong correlation between recovering your capabilities and engaging in aggression. So it really seems to be that states wait to actually recover their capabilities before they go out there and and, you know, attack other states, which suggests it's not, you know, it's it's unlikely, it seems, on the face of it, to think that they're going up to make up for material loss that they experienced as a result of the defeat. Um, and you know also, in the case of colonialism, I mean, I, I document in some other work about how there, in so many of these cases, did not perceive there to be strong material benefit involved which is not to say that's true of all acts of colonialization, but in many cases, they were clear, you know, in Africa, the only thing of value there in the desert is air. Like they were, you know.
5: Yeah. See, my, my instinct is to say that the colonial cases, particularly after the turn of the 20th century, would be more likely to provide evidence for you. I mean, I was sort of steeped in the offensive realist tradition. Yeah. Um, and my, you know, sort of knee jerk um, uh, hypothesis is states want as much power, power as they same. can get, and yeah. it doesn't really, it's not about making up with what you lost, which is, right. you know, the hated defense of realism. This is about being the Hoover vacuum cleaner and sucking up right. every bit of power that you can.
1: But what you suck up matters, right? Obviously if you're going to go and expend resources somewhere to do it, doing it in Tunisia where you really don't expect all you've had in neighboring Algeria is conflict and headache, right? Uh, that you know, you really—they did not expect any sort of material value there. That, that really, they didn't perceive that it was going to, you know. And it was a bankrupt state. They knew there was going to be massive financial investment in order to get any sort of profit out of this place. Um, you know, so so yes, it may be true. You you want to go out and get bigger, um, but you know, you know, maybe you do this. Maybe you would do it more likely if you were defeated. But then I still argue that why are you picking on, on weak, sometimes completely helpless states with such a massive power differential? Really, you know, I didn't show the graph, but like, the weaker the state is, the more likely you are to initiate conf- conflict against it. right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I totally allow for the fact that there still may be material gains uh, within there, but kind of look at the cases that I've, looking at the cases I have, I haven't seen evidence that that's really driving things. Um, in terms of the process tracing, I mean, national thought pattern, I, I do a lot more of that in, in um, kind of the book in which I look at kind of development of these types of things within the French narrative over uh, the period, um, you know, the, the kind of post defeat period. Um, but, you know, if, if there are, you know, ways that we can think of, I mean, obviously it would be great if I had data on kind of, you know, I, w- I wouldn't just need data on kind of, um, the material resources of a state. I would need data on the perceived material resources of a state to know if that's why, you know, if that differentially motivated states to, to attack the territories that they do. Um, and, you know, I don't I, I don't have that, but so, you know, I, I concede that there, there may be some material objective there. Uh, why that material objective is necessarily heightened by defeat, I guess, you know, you could argue it makes you more vulnerable. Why then you would go target much weaker states, I don't know how that, Exactly fits with those kind of material objectives.
0: Okay, next up is Kimberly.
6: Um, thank you, Professor Banhai. I really enjoyed the presentation. Um, but I would like to know more of how you define status because I find it very really difficult to pass out the difference between humiliation and status. I'm not sure whether they are like two sides of also coin. And also, like how, how do we know that it's status and not like fear instead? Like fear of like, because you also mentioned the idea of like, fear of like being attacked or whatnot. So I'm not sure which is really the motivate, motivating factor. And also you speak of status and status seeking seem seemingly the same way. But if great powers were to already be a great power, would they still be status seeking in a sense? So I would like to know how would you differentiate these two concepts as well. And also like how does status um, remain for like 10 or 20 years before like a war happens? Like is there a relationship between great powers and status that is different for like non great powers, because I see it in Iran's case as well, the way Iran is reacting to US, the way Iran is reacting to Iraq, it is as much motivated by humiliation, like status as well as like fear. So, um, I wanted to know as well, with reference to the last question, like how does this idea of status or the loss of status get maintained or sustained in a great power? Is there a special relationship?
1: OK, OK, I think I understood the difference between status and humiliation, status of fear, and longevity of humiliation. And so status status OK, OK, I think I got that. OK, um, status and humiliation. I'm sorry I didn't find terms, um, but, but absolutely. So you know, humiliation I define or is defined in the literature as a, a threat to or lowering of one's image in the eyes of others and in the eyes of oneself. So there's this notion that humiliation is directly tied to status. It involves it's, you know, that you perceive that your position, your social position could be lowered as a result of some event. Okay? So they're absolutely linked. Um, the only thing that humiliation is really also involves this added component that it affects how one sees themselves. When one feels humiliated, it's not just a social perception. There's the sense in oneself that you, you know, there's a lowering of self-esteem that is involved when you feel humiliated. Um, and so there are kind of two components to that, whereas status is typically, we think of it as this um, social, const- you know, this result of a, a, um, some sort of interactive process, a social construct um, in the eyes of others, right? Uh, so that's status and humiliation. Um, so how do we know it's not fear? And so we have to translate that fear artic- argument into some sort of how fear would explain relationship between past defeat and future aggression, right? That's the primary relationship, empirical relationship we're trying to explain. And so we have to think about how fear would do that. And so maybe one explanation is that you've lost, you've lo- you' suffered some material loss of material capabilities, and now you're fearful of future challengers. And so you go out to seek some sort of way to bolster your defenses. So that could be a fear explanation. Um, but you know, I don't know if we can think of others. But um, but uh, so you know, it kind of goes back to this: how do we parse this? Whether or not they're motivated by material goals, or they're not. Uh, and you know, I kind of return to my answer on, on that one: that it's hard to get at. But you know, how much are they gaining by taking territory in northern Africa or wherever? Uh, they might take it. Um, in terms of the longevity, so social psychologists have shown that amongst all emotional states that humiliation is the most long-lasting and actually can be exacerbated over time if individuals, social actors are not able to redress it. So you know, the, the thing they always say is that it's possible to think back about something that you were afraid of or angry about without feeling that fear or anger but that if you think back to a time you were humiliated, it's almost impossible to not feel some physical sense of humiliation. Uh, and so that's how we, we tend to think about it. And you, you, know, you see many examples of this, that you know, the Chinese still can arouse sentiments of humiliation by referencing this you know, century of humiliation, which lasted between 1860, roughly, and, and the Revolution. Right? And that there's still this sense that China, this kind of perception of longevity of humiliation, um, and, and so it can last for a very long time. I mean, Slobodan Milosevic gave a speech that celebrated or was kind of marking the 600th anniversary of <laughs> Serbian defeat, right? So, like, it, it can have very long legs if, it's feel, if, in fact, actors don't feel like they have reestablished themselves. Um, does that answer your questions? Please.
6: Then, how does it trigger in a sense? When does it end? Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, you know that really what you're trying to do in many of these cases is seek recognition, right? You want some sort of recognition from outside powers uh, that you are the status that you think that you are or that you deserve, right? So you can think about ways that states can be recognized. This can be through, you know, achieved in more diplomatic ways. Uh, you know, states may be successful on the world stage and feel that their humiliation has been redressed. They may acquire nuclear weapons, they may engage in acts that they think restores the esteem of the state and that provides some path out of humiliation. But it also can occur as a result of kind of how others treat them, right? If they're somehow incorporated into the P5 or they're you know given a seat at the diplomatic table or they have Olympics. I mean, there's lots of ways that they think that states can feel that they've essentially, announced their you know preeminence on the world stage. Um, but it's a good question. We don't really really know. I mean I kind of offer exploration you know, hypotheses in the book, but they haven't been tested, so we don't know the answer to that. And you still have two fingers on that or you out I'll just say very quickly the interesting about the most education though is that it's um they gain status
3: through defeat. They are proud that mm-hmm. they fought valiantly and mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. And they so that's a different um, hypothesis that might be interesting to test later.
0: Like Fair enough. Okay, next
7: up is Professor Limley. Um, Several things I'm curious about. Um, Thank you for provoking tons of thought. Um, First of all, you kind of answered this uh, in your last remarks, but who frames if something's a defeat or not? Um, How much are states beating themselves up internally and just projecting their defeat and imagining others think they're weak? Or how much is actually this sort of pecking order thing that you mentioned? Hard to determine, but... Unless externally driven. Um, the old country doctor in me just wants more explanation of why something that is a low-risk opportunity equals status mm-hmm. seems counterintuitive to me, and so therefore you know, there's some overlap with your reputational thing. It seems like a reputation would be, you'd want a, a high-risk, high-reward, uh, some sort of uh, venture that way. And I'm wondering also um, sort of finally about other sources of conflict, uh, competing explanations, and theories which your theory plays into. So you, know, you had a, a bunch of fairly convincing quotes, but I bet you for almost every war you can find all sorts of quotes about us defeating Hitler many times from the Spanish-American war on us having economic opportunities, um, human rights, international law. You know, Anytime we go to war we throw the book at the perpetrator and um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what your sense is in terms of... Conflict percent of, so Yeah, percent there. of conflict explained as <coughs> status compared to everything else you might want to mobilize your public, mm-hmm. to justify it to yourself, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. With relation to other theories, I'm wondering if you might have hit upon a variation of scapegoat theory, um, in which it's not necessarily internal turmoil, which leads to war, but a sense of external loss that leads you to have to mobilize your own people mm-hmm. to overcome this sense of so it's an internal mobilization, but based on external uh, loss. I'm also wondering about um, you know, Blaney's theory about optimism leading towards, anything that contributes to optimism leads to war. and what you're arguing is different. It's sort of a pessimism, right? Loss leads to war, except that you're, another twist is that you go after Tunisia. So you have to, from pessimism, you generate optimism against a meaningless target. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that. And finally, how your theory relates to prospect theory. Because obviously you're driven into the domain of losses, and therefore more risk acceptance. So if you find gold in prospect theory, maybe there's some overlap, or maybe not.
1: All right. Thank you for uh, a bunch of very good questions. So, who frames defeat? Um, you know, in some cases it doesn't require framing. It's pretty clear what happens. You're right. I mean, I think there is some internal conflict. I take that back. And there is internal debate after the fact as to the. What, you know, who is to blame, right? Is it somehow our military that failed to perform as they were supposed to, our government that initiated the war that they were going to lose, or is this a result of the other side, right? Who do, who do we cast blame upon? You certainly see that in the case of the French after the war. They go through this thing in which, you know, the military is, is you know, everyone is angry at the military. Uh, in Japan, you know, post-war Japan, it's, you know, did our generals prosecute a losing war, et cetera. You know, uh, there is definitely domestic incentive from of politicians to turn that anger elsewhere, right? So they, you know, domestic leaders that are trying to regain power, stabilize political things, have every incentive to say, "Look at those guys over there; they did it." And I think that you know, channeling this kind of other-directed anger uh, is something that they very much will try to do in 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 effort to kind of deflect cause, um, deflect blame, blame, I should say. so you know, I, I think they have a pretty strong objective to, to cast, cast this narrative uh, in that way. Um, but you know, how that narrative process comes about is just something that I, I'm thinking about now—is kind of how narratives form and how you know when you invoke humiliation and when you don't, and the context, of kind of domestic conditions under which you do that, is kind of ongoing research um, that uh, is being done. Um, so I think that gets at the internal rejection of defeat. Uh, okay, so I want to try and convince you on this low risk equal status thing because it's you know this thing that people say it just goes against common sense. How is it? How and why is it true? And so you think about acts you engage in in order to have some status. You have some status in mind that you want, and so what do you do? You think about how actors with that status behave. Oh. Whatever your status hierarchy may be, oh, they have this car, so you get that car, right? Like that there's certain symbols uh, attributed or associated with different hierarchies, okay? And I argue it's the same in international politics, that colonies for a time were that thing. Projection of power abroad has always been that thing for great power. So even if it's low risk in terms of the fact that you might not fail, it also signals a willingness and an intention to remain a great power, and that serves this domestic purpose of restoring optimism, and it serves this purpose purpose of signaling to other states that you intend to sa- keep a seat at the table. So even if it's not a risky act, even if there's no chance that you might, you know, that you you're not showing others how militarily strong there is, there is a strong signaling benefit into kind of what role you intend to play on the world stage. Um, so I don't know if that convinced you at all, but that's you know that's that's uh, that's you know. Uh, um, uh, an important concept that I'm trying to to uh, convince you of. So, um, other sources of uh, okay. How much of this am I explaining? You know, I found these three quotes. Um, you know, I've done. All, you know, again, I keep returning this case that I know so well. But in the Franco-Prussian, in the in instance of Tunisia, it's you know, I explore all possible rationales: military, economic, uh, domestic diversion, etc., and find absolutely no sort of you know alternative very little support for any alternative explanations right that it's you know there was no business or in, in industry that wanted to go into Tunisia the explorers that ended up there it was like okay well we, we'll do this the main thing that really seemed to prompt them to do it is the idea that Italy might try and take Tunisia and they did not like that right that somehow again that this would lower their status vis-a-vis Italy and that was unacceptable so it really seemed to be, you know, that there's that at least in that case, and um, you know, others that I explore, not necessarily related to defeat, because I look at other forms of humiliation in the book. But I do try and uh, assess, to the best of my ability, alternative theories that root are rooted in kind of material uh, or strategic rationales. Um, so scapegoat theory, I think you could absolutely say is, you know, yeah. I think scapegoat theory somehow that leaders say, all right, we don't want to take the blame for this. We don't want to take the heat. We're going to focus that blame elsewhere. You frequently see that. You look at what China does now. The century of humiliation did not involve the United States, but it targets its ire against the United States, right? So you could think about in times when they are struggling with domestic legitimacy or something that they seek to or or that there's perceptions of kind of um, you know, failure in international crises, scapegoating at the expense of the United States seems to be plausible. Mobilizing your own people, uh, yes, can be good for leaders. And this connect, connects to this relationship between pessimism, optimism, and war. And I think that there is this process by which in going to engage in these acts in Tunisia boosts the optimism of the state, right? But also you see, you see, um, you know, this relationship between recovery, I see, uh, this relationship between recovery, right? That somehow, you know, you do see states wait to recover first. That, that there does seem to be, it's not that when they're feeling the most dire, it's once they've restored their capabilities, that they're like, now it's time to go, right? France waited until roughly 1880. They had been talking about the desire since almost the eve of the defeat. But they wait nine or 10 years before they feel they're in a position to act in a confident manner. And so I think you, know, it, it, you see things that they may do along the way that leaders may engage in other acts intended to bolster the optimism of their people, whether it be public works or, I mean, this is one that Hitler talks about when he's talking about restoring German optimism after the war and like leading up to Germans' reassertion on the world stage, right? So, so there is this relationship between kind of small steps of boosting the optimism eventually leading to Maybe these third-party acts, which boost optimism more, which lead to even more certifacts. So, I, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. But
4: what do you do, a it two fingers on that? Uh, I just want to be on the list.
0: <laughs> okay, but if you don't have two fingers, and you're not going to have your say, so yeah, that's a you have two moral hazard. Oh, so you've got two fingers? <laughs> I do now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'll wait till dinner. I don't
5: want to be a weasel. Yeah, you're right. you get a so There are other
0: people on the list. the other people on the list. Okay. Uh, let, let me just have two fingers then. <laughs> um, uh, okay, very quickly um, three points, but the, the, the opening, the context is the empirics are great here. Really terrific empirical findings, and I think you should run them with the flight ball. My concerns are three. Uh, the first is the opening vignette. I don't think it's good. I don't think you want to build around this case. Um, because um, they don't need to rebuild the Tunisia. They could do it at any point. The time lag is a real problem here. And you have a bunch of cases where there wasn't a time lag, where the, after the Russo Japanese War, Izvolsky goes after the Allen Islands immediately. And then he you know, tries to do the, you know, the Bosnian crisis and does a bunch of really boneheaded things to try and resurrect Russian reputation. So. I, I think you are, there are better examples than the one you took here. Okay, care. Um, The second thing though is related to that is timing, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of an atheoretical time lag. So a 10 year and 20 year, but shouldn't you just want to do when they recover their relative power? Sure. Um, so I, I would at least check that, sure. or at least develop that in your theory. Um, and the third thing is, um, I just think you really need to do more on developing the theory of status and the theory behind the reputation, mm-hmm. and this echoing other points that people have made. Um, we didn't see your theory chapter, so this is probably not yeah. a fair criticism, but just. But I'm
1: sending this out as a standalone paper, so it's useful. Okay,
0: yeah. um, but I think you can, you can absolutely control for material factors, and then say, look, I have control for all these other things. You still have past actions driving the outcome. Mm-hmm. You can't give me a material story on that if I've controlled for all the other things. So the
1: same score of the other state your target.
0: I'm sure there's a bunch of things in the literature that say material factors ought to correlate with conflict. Once yeah, you can, yeah. yeah, you have yeah, yeah. some of them in here, right? But yeah, just yeah. a couple more, and then you just say, look, they're all controlled for. Her. This is still showing up.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, there's also, uh, to tie in on Dan's point, there's a really great chance to slap down um, behavioral economics, right? This dominant effect says so very clearly one of the strongest findings in prospect theory is you ought to double down and be much, much more risk accepting. You see neither risk acceptance nor doubling down on what you previously owned, Right. Which is, I think, more important than the social psychology, psychological literature that you cite.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So that would just be a, a juicier target. Okay. As a side question, which is petty, but throw it out there um, your non great power results, how much of that is driven by power projection capability? Yeah. So at least do um, a little something. A line or two about the okay. fact that, of course, non-gray powers are not are going to be more prone to fight the person they fought before. They can't reach anybody else. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, um, you can respond to that. Although we have eight more minutes, and we have two more questioners okay. that have yet to speak. Okay. So you can talk to me at dinner, or okay. you can respond to that. Okay.
1: okay. Just so in terms of the the prospect theory thing, I forgot to, to address that, and I think you're you're. Um, Absolutely right that this kind of goes against it. I mean, it it also shows. So in another paper, I look at. I kind of look at the relationship. I don't kind of. I do. I look at the relationship between voluntary territorial loss and involuntary territorial loss, and I look at cases in which the material implications of those two types of loss are the same. And I show that in fact, in the case of involuntary territorial loss, you're far more likely to go out and seek territory again. Uh, so this, and the, the implication there is really that prospect theory says it's about any loss, but really it's about how you lose. So that's another way, kind of, I think that that prospect theory is not quite capturing. It's really not just about a material loss, but but how you lose that thing. Anyway, we can talk about that um, more later, maybe. Sorry.
0: Okay, uh, over to Professor Bollefeld.
2: All right. So you stole my my first question, which was about the timing. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but my second question is about how you're conceptualizing great power. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all know, of course, that, that great powers are, are sticky things to define. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I think there's an interesting piece here that you could bring in, which is normally when we think about great powers, we think about external perception of power of the country. But because you're dealing with humiliation, I think there's a piece of self-perception that's important. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious as to you, if you've thought that through, or how you've thought that through, or how you build
1: that into your concept of what it means to be a great power. Fair enough. Um, I don't. Uh, essentially, you know, in this empirical approach is that I'm looking at kind of this agreed upon coding of great powers within the system. And I know there is contentious, you know, there's some contention about who counts as when, et cetera. Uh, And so, certainly, I can go in and look at other codings that other uh, people, scholars, have have done to see how dependent this is upon kind of that that particular definition. Um, But in terms of uh, kind of building in the self perception, um, I I don't. I definitely agree that there's some relationship between how you perceive yourself and humiliation. Uh, But I think that a lot of kind of your status expectations in the world relate to how much status you had in the past. And so you know, if, if you were perceived, if you were a great power and you've fallen down a few rungs, then your status goals are still up there. right? Mussolini comes back in and says he's going to restore the Roman grandeur, right? Uh, uh, that, that still this model is in mind that can be drawn upon as a status, you know, status goal for Italy. Um, but I, you know, at the moment it, it's not explicitly worked in there. I kind of in the theory chapter, theory chapter, I deal a lot more explicitly, like with where status expectations come from and that relationship. But I don't in this paper. It's true. But I think it would be good to include other codings of great power just to get to see how you know dependent upon it that is. Um, and in terms of timing, I, I, I think um, you know, I think that absolutely, like there is this uh, variable um, that I include that that looks at kind of when you're most likely to do it and, and just making it more explicit to say, all right, I'm going to look at, you know, drawing on my theory is to say I'm just going to look at exactly what my theory would predict uh, and then compare that with prior times is maybe a, a better way to do that.
0: Did you do robustness checks on other one, three, five, seven? Oh, yeah, tests? on
1: all of it and annual and awesome. good placebo yeah. tests looking backwards and all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah.
0: Great. Dr. Koh, you were next? Yeah, Sure.
8: So I think there are two alternative ways that you can test this effect of humiliating defeats. Mm-hmm. So one is looking at um, whether a state initiated a conflict and d- defeated, or uh, whether and, or they, um, they, was, they were challenged and then defeated. Mm-hmm. So I think those two um, situations are quite different. And Sarah Croco at Maryland has actually a, a work that shows those um leaders who are culp- culpable uh, for conflict are more likely to be punished by the public as well. Mm-hmm. So, when um a state is challenged and then defeated, then leaders can maybe make more excuses for their defeat, and this defeat can be uh, feel can be felt like less humiliated. Yeah. So um so you can use that as a proxy, and then the second uh, uh way is to look at um like international library. So a conflict between like, um, library, libraries usually engage national owners much more than other types of conflict. So my expectation is um, if a country is defeated with a conflict with its uh, regional library, that, that would be feel more yeah, mm-hmm. humili- humiliated um, for that country. So you can, I think, look at uh, both of those um, this is as an, um, another way to test your art. Okay, and Please. I have one more question, but I feel like this question is more for, um, like, Mike. So <laughs> so if, like, offensive realism uh, is really right, and then states want to get stronger um, in any case, then why don't we see, actually, the effect of victory? I think that's an important thing to emphasize for you, yeah.
1: Um, so thank you for those suggestions. Uh, I actually do. I have looked at the test in the appendix. There says, um I look at the effect of a conflict which you initiated and lost versus a conflict you did not, and you still you see a mark a statistically significant increase in uh, post-defeat aggression in those cases. So absolutely, it holds up in this idea that that would be more humiliating. I haven't looked at the second suggestion about losing to a in like a, a rival, and I think that's a, a good one. You're right. You can imagine that that would be more humiliating domestically and internationally, yeah.
0: OK, final question. Dr. Goltz, you take us into the sunset. We have time for one more.
4: Um, I, I, I guess I, I'm just troubled. Lucy should not take us into the sunset. But I'm troubled by um, the fact that the so-called paradigm cases of humiliation don't seem to act the way you suggest. So. You know, it's not just that overall in the data set you find this relationship. The cases that seem to be, you know, the Russo-Japanese War you mentioned, or the Six-Day War, or I actually thought, as uh, ji was asking her question about, you know, rivals, enduring rivalries should humiliate you more. You know, the Turks get beaten, they get beaten again, they get beaten again after that. You want some more? Yes. <laughs> they
7: just over and over again,
4: and they never Turn around and go on the offense. Okay, so and I'm... it seems like that's, you know, if they don't go on the offense as a result.
1: If Where you look it? at if you look at conflict initiation as a factor of number of defeats within the last twenty years, it goes down, right? You obviously, with each defeat, you're losing the ability to go out and act on the international stage. So yeah. that is a, a very a significant yeah, relationship, sure. right? The more you've lost, the less aggressive you're going to be across the board, right. and obviously material. Because you find
4: out your military sucks. You
1: suck, and right? So there's you know <laughs> there's not much that you can do except to just keep get, getting beat up.
4: You could conquer Tunisia. <laughs> well, you, <laughs>
1: Okay. Fair (laughs) Fair enough.
0: In that case, they actually go to Southeast Asia, and then there's the, you know, there's the, (laughs) there's the, there's the, no, we're talking (laughs) France and Tunisia, but at the same time, they go to Southeast Asia, and they accidentally hear that they had a loss in Southeast Asia, and they, they throw ferry, they almost throw ferry in the river and out of office, and, um, and then it turned out it was a false report, and they're like, well, we'll pull back. <laughs> um, but in yeah. theory, was such a big booster, huh. and no. then the public was like, "We want. We don't want any part of this." Yeah, no,
4: that's you know, the true.
0: only thing we like about the empire is belly dancing. Was the expression.
4: <laughs> that's a Greek dude. That's Can we go on? Yeah, yeah. We're done. There we All go. All
0: right, everybody, let's welcome Jocelyn Barham for a wonderful presentation.
5: If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Centre seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash. Or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Centre or the University of Notre Dame. Which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.